You might notice we sang a lot of victory songs this morning. Isn't that nice? There should be clapping. That's right. We are celebrating victory. And uh, this morning's passage is going to hit there. We're going to get into that zone. We're coming very close to the end of this study. So would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds to you. We want to hear from you. We need a fresh word from you. And I ask God that you would speak to us, help us to hear you, and help us to obey. Lord, reveal yourself in your word this morning. And do the same in us, in our daily lives, so that we can reflect you. We ask your blessing on this time. May you be glorified by all that's said and done. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are heading towards the home stretch of our series in the book of Revelation called The Famous Last Words. Uh, Revelation is a book with a whole lot of symbolic language. You may have noticed that as we've been going along. And it was primarily written to the seven churches of Asia Minor in the first century. That's that, that hermeneutics rule, that interpretations rule, first century first. And, uh, and it helps us to understand I think get a context first, and then if there's future application, which we know there is, uh, it helps us to be grounded, at least in what it meant to the people who received it first. Language is very symbolic here, and there are lots of traditions for interpretation. But, you know, a lot of those traditions, they ignore some of the most basic rules of interpretation. We've got to know things about the author about the audience. Who was, who was it who wrote it? Who received it? What was the intention in writing it? What's, what's the context? Where's it placed? What's going on in their day? We need to know all of those things. Who wrote it? For whom? For what reason? And when? And what's all around it? What was the author's intention here? I mean, why did John write this? Did he write it to help churches that he was overseeing? To help them to keep the faith during persecution? Or did John sit down to think, now what should I say to the 21st century Christians so that they'll go nuts about conspiracy theories? Is that what John's intention was? Is that why he wrote it? Uh uh, that's not it. Well, last week I, I promised that I would spend a little time at the beginning here looking at the millennium. Oh, God, we did the recap. I promised that uh, we would look at this word and what it meant a little bit. Uh, millennium, of course, is Latin for a thousand years. And um, we ended last week at the beginning of Revelation 20 with Satan, who is also listed here as the dragon, the ancient serpent, or the devil. We ended with him being sentenced to prison in the abyss. The abyss is uh, known as the bottomless pit. And uh, he's sentenced there for a thousand years. There's an angel who comes and takes him off, kind of in handcuffs, so to speak. He, he brings a big chain, and he actually binds Satan up in this chain and hurls him into this pit and locks him away for a period of a thousand years. It's a place where he can't hurt anybody, he can't deceive anybody, he can't influence anybody. But apparently he's not gone for good. He'll be back but only for a short period of time, as God allows. Revelation 20, starting at verse 4, says, I saw thrones on which there were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark in their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Jesus a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So here's a, a thousand year time of peace without Satan. A great, big, peaceful pause in the middle of all this action that's been going on in which Christ reigns alongside of the martyrs. Right? Only, guess what? There are multiple interpretations of what this word thousand or the thousand years represents. Uh, all kinds of them. Now, there are four main ones. Let me just put them up on the screen for you. Uh, I want you to memorize these very quickly because we're going to have a lot of time this morning. Dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, postmillennialism, or amillennialism. Now, you write those down, and you have the privilege now of going home and looking all those things up. Don't you feel privileged? You'll thank me later, I promise. It's fun. So, some few folks... Um, View the book of Revelation, chapter 20, as a future time on earth, a theocracy, where Christ rules the nations for a thousand years. Another group sees it as a time during which Christ will rule from heaven, and he'll do that through the life-changing power of the gospel. Another group sees this figure of a thousand years as purely symbolic, since a thousand in Bible numerology is the length of time that relates to the opposition of dark and evil powers. Some people think the time of a thousand years is completely irrelevant, because 2 Peter 3.8 says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. In other words, God doesn't measure time the way that we do, and trying to figure it all out, make sure it all comes out right, might break our brains. I know it broke mine. Lots of people think they have it all figured out. You know, you're going to meet people who think that they have every step at every part of the book of Revelation figured out. They probably have a big old chart on their basement wall and it shows where everything begins and where everything ends. And, and if somebody comes to you and tells you that they've got every single part figured out, here's what I want you to do. Don't make eye contact. Back away really slowly. Turn and run. Because there ain't no person who knows every single part of what the book of Revelation means except Jesus. And that is the truth. You're going to meet people who want to sell you books. You're going to meet people who want to sell you videos or want you to go to their church because they're, they know all this stuff and they've got, for some reason, the Holy Spirit only gave them the answer to what's written here. Well, you know what? That ain't it. That ain't it. So we need to be very careful how we approach this. I, I think... We've been walking slowly through it for a reason. We've been looking at parts which 
pretty obviously have some application right there in the day in which it was given. And then there's some pretty obvious parts, like where we're at right now, that point to the future and say, hey, this isn't all fulfilled yet. Some of this is yet to come. Final judgment hasn't happened yet. We're going to talk about that today, about part of it. So, so that's kind of where we are at today. Um, we know for sure that Satan's first judgment is imprisonment for a period of time. And after that, he's loosed to cause havoc before a second and final judgment happens. That's where we're at today. We're looking at the final two judgments. The final judgment of Satan and the final judgment of the dead. So let's look at the final judgment of Satan first. If you have your Bible this morning, I encourage you to open it to Revelation 20. I'm not going to put all the words up here, um, but some of them. Um, Revelation 20, starting at verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In a number, they were like sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city where he lives. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And then it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. So here's an obvious question right off the bat. The lake of fire, is this hell? Is the lake of fire hell? That's a really obvious question. It's a good question. The easy answer, I believe, is yes. Uh, you know, we get confused about hell. The poet Dante Alighieri, um, he forever confused us with his epic poem, The Inferno. It seems he took all the things he knew about hell. He, he took the, the, idea, the understanding of Hades and the abyss and the lake of fire, and then he put some mythology in there, and then a lot of his own opinions in there, and he mixed them all up and wrote The Inferno, this great poem. And, and it outlines hell as a series of, of concentric circles. I think there are six of them. Nine of them, that's it. There's nine concentric circles of hell. And the story in the poem is about a journey through hell to try to get out. And um, so he really confuses the issue about what hell is all about because after this poem came out, all kinds of people began to think of the poem as this is what hell was. This is the truth. Now, that never happens in our day, does it? You know, where people say stuff that isn't quite right and other people believe it. Thankfully, we're smarter than that. That doesn't happen to us at all. But anyway, it happened to in, in Dante's day and since that day. And a lot of Dante has made its way into popular culture so that a lot of what we know about hell actually comes from Dante and doesn't come from the Bible. So we're going to try and slide through some of that this morning and maybe help to correct a little bit of that. So that historical... And traditional view of hell is what theologians call ECT, or Eternal Conscious Torment. That's the, that's the acronym that they use. And it's based on this verse at the end of Revelation 10, it says, or, or 2010, it says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Now, when you go up back and you look at how Jesus referred to hell, Jesus always used a particular word. He used the word Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna, Gehenna was a place in the Valley of Hinnom, which isn't too far from Jerusalem. And it was a place that was cursed by the prophet Jeremiah. It was a place where some of the kings of Judah went out and offered their children as sacrifices to the god Molech. And that's something that the Jews considered to be the most detestable thing ever done in Jewish history. So when the Jews thought of hell, they thought of Gehenna. They thought of this valley where they believed that the wicked would be judged in a place that was cursed. Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle wrote a book together about hell called Erasing Hell. Now, they're not trying to say there is no hell at all. That What they're trying to do is sort through Scripture, what Scripture actually says about hell, and the myths that were created by people like Dante. They come to a conclusion, very, they're looking at Jesus and his relationship to an understanding of hell, and they came to the conclusion that Scripture is very, very clear, that Jesus himself believes in a real hell like the Jews of the first century. And so did the followers of Jesus who came after him. Now, you got to remember that Jesus is the one giving John the vision on the island of Patmos, this vision of the book of Revelation. Jesus himself preached hell is a real place. Preston Sprinkle says, the traditional view of hell makes the most sense of what the Bible says about the character of God and the magnitude of sin. God is a God of justice, along with being a God of love and all his other attributes. You know, and we, we tend to raise one up above the others and say, well, this one's the most important, or that one's the most important. We know that love is very, very, very important, but love doesn't take away God's justice. In fact, God's justice exists because of God's love. Now, there's another view of punishment after death, and it's usually called terminal punishment. You may not have heard of this one, although you may know the concept. It follows the idea that, yes, people are harshly judged and punished eternally if they don't come to Christ. But they believe that to be cast into the lake of fire is to be destroyed eternally. You see the difference? One is to be eternally and consciously tormented. The other is to be cast into a place of torment that destroys you. Now, there are several strong scriptures, actually, in the New Testament that support that as well. And, and there are some good, good scholars on both sides in both camps. I fall into the camp personally of a traditional view, a historical view, based on what I see in scripture. I find it difficult not to. You know, regardless, the devil, after his rebellion and all the havoc he has created in history, like the beast, like the false prophet, he's thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell, and justice is served. Well, then comes the second part we're looking at this morning, and that's the judgment of the dead. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, if you want to follow along, I encourage you to do so. It starts in verse 11. 
And I, I suppose this is the passage that we fear the most. This is the judgment of humanity. And I think there are a lot of us who, who look at this with, with trembling, with fear and trembling. Let me read what it says. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the Lamb's book of life, in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the part that they often call, that historically we've called the great white throne judgment because of the beginning of it, which talks about this great white throne. In the first resurrection, it says, the martyrs of the faith were raised from the dead to rule with Christ during that millennium, during that thousand years period, however that rolls out. But now, at this point, the very last judgment, the final judgment, uh, includes all humans from all parts of history, and that would include us. This is a future undertaking. And we are called to stand before the throne of Christ to account for ourselves. Now, I want you to notice that death and Hades are judged first. They're put before the throne first as if they were people. It kind of humanizes them. Well, we know that death was defeated at the cross by Jesus. We sang about that this morning. The laws of sin and death. Death is the killer. And Hades is the abode of the dead, the place where the dead dwelt, according to Jewish belief. This is the arraignment. This is the sentence. This is the final judgment. Death and Hades are what? It says, death and Hades, I don't think we have it. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. It says the lake of fire is the second death. Well, with these two, that portion of judgment is completely done. Struggle with temptation and guilt and suffering, spiritual attack, that all went down with the devil. Now, death itself is gone. In front of Jesus here is the book of life. Revelation 13 and Revelation 21 refer to it as the Lamb's book of life. Verse 12 says, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. More than one book. One book that tracks our life, or maybe more than one. And then this one book, the Lamb's book of life. You know, as I read this, it reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats. That's in Matthew 25. The parable is about eternal punishment or reward. And Jesus tells the goats who, 
who kind of confront him and say, well, hey, we didn't know we were missing out on all this stuff. When did we not do this? When did we not help the poor? When did we not help the sick, clothe the naked, visit the prisoners? And Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You know, it's not our works that gain us entrance into heaven. You know that. Rather, it's the things that we do. Those things that we do are the proof of our salvation. They're the demonstration that we are, in fact, children of God. Followers of Jesus do exactly that. They follow Jesus. We follow in his footsteps. We follow his example And we are called to live our lives according to God's calling and according to our understanding of of Jesus' teaching in the Scriptures, not only taught by Jesus, but taught by those who followed him in the rest of the New Testament. You know, we don't always get it right. We don't always get it perfect. But we don't have to live in fear of failing. I think so many of us do. Jesus' death is big enough to cover those sins too. His blood paid the price for our sins and covers those that we commit between the time that we are saved and the time which we go home to be with Jesus. It's our responsibility to continue to walk with him. And when we get off the path, we ask Jesus to help us get back on the path and to walk in his direction. That's possible because of the blood of Christ. The redeemed, those who accept Jesus' gift of salvation and redemption and eternal life, have their names written in the Lamb's book. Those who have not, do not. And it's that simple. The very last verse in verse 20 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which we understand now to be hell. You know, there's a compassionate side of me that says no. There's a compassionate side of me that doesn't want to accept this. There is a heart that Jesus changed in me that wants to believe something other than this, this tender heart that God gave me. I don't want it to be true. But here it is, and we're confronted with it, not only here, but many places elsewhere in Scripture. Ultimately, justice must be served. God's justice is just as important as God's love and all his other attributes, as we've said. Now, as we've been on our journey together through the book of Revelation, I hope that you've noticed that, that just how often God offers his gift through Jesus. How often does Jesus extend that gift? You know, we've been reading through Revelation. All these things are coming down. All these plagues are coming down. And in between every single one until the last one, there is an opportunity to turn to God. Yet they don't. There's an opportunity to come to Jesus over and over. He says, repent and turn to me over and over through history. He said it. He offered it. 
God's love and compassion compel him to ask you to come. You know, maybe he's even prayed for you to come, and I believe that he probably has, because it says that Jesus intercedes for us at the right hand of God. Imagine for a moment what this day might be like. Judgment Day. The day that we stand with everybody else before God. When I was first a Christian, uh, my friend Ernie, who helped to lead me to Jesus, he, the, one of the first weeks we sat down to start to learn the Bible together, he talked to me about judgment. Now, that's a good place to start discipleship, don't you think? <laughs> Scare the pants off the new believer? <laughs> Let's start right there. Well, here's what Ernie said, and, I, and, and it makes sense to me in retrospect, as I'm a little further distance from this. He says, think about judgment like standing before a gigantic movie screen at a drive-in. Some of you won't know what a drive-in is. That's a place where you used to drive your car up to see a movie. You can look that up, too. Ernie said, I, I think the great white throne judgment is going to be like standing in front of a giant screen at a movie theater or a drive-in. All you've ever done, all your thoughts and actions will be up on that screen to be judged. You'll stand in line until it's your turn to be judged. You'll dread the very thought of that. All your stuff is going to be up there. To which I say, thanks, Ernie, for that. That's stuck forever in my head now. It's the thing of nightmares. But here's where the nightmare goes away. When it's your turn, you step up and you look up and that giant screen is empty. All you see is red. The blood of Jesus has covered over your sins. Your sins are paid for. Your slate is clean. There's nothing to be judged because God has already declared it justified. We like to say just as if it never happened, right? And also there in front of you, your name is written in a book larger than life. It's the Lamb's book of life. And you're standing there and you're looking and you're seeing your name and maybe you just can't quite believe it and you look down and you're wearing white robes made of linen. You're dressed for the wedding. This is it. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now into my rest. Let me ask you a question a hard question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? If you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior and meant it and follow him, I guarantee that it's written there already. 1 Peter 1.20 and Revelation 13.8 tell us that your name was written there before the foundation of the world. Before you took a single breath, Jesus knew what you were going to do and who you were going to be. And he wrote your name in that book. 
If you haven't received Jesus, you need to. And you can do that by praying with me this morning. Jesus is calling you, just like he's called the rest of us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to put the prayer I'm going to pray up here on the screen because I think um, it's helpful. This is only a first step in our Christian life, is to, to pray to receive Christ and begin a journey. Let's pray silently together. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins, and I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now that's just the first step. That's just the beginning. You know, it's not pray the prayer and everything's over. It's pray the prayer and begin. This is where we begin to learn who Jesus is and learn how to follow him. And so please, if you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, would you please let me know so that we can talk together, so that we can help to help you grow. We want to help you learn all about the Bible, how to read it, how to understand who Jesus is and how to follow him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to continue our series. We're going to take a break next week for some reason. <laughs> it's going to be Christmas. But we'll come back in a couple of weeks and uh, we're going to walk into heaven. Walk into the new heaven and the new earth. I found this, this quote from N.T. Wright, which I think is a wonderful way to end. He says, the rule of death has come to an end, but the rule of life is about to begin. Amen?